Hello, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to this, a special presentation of The Hub Dialogues. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum in conversation with The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. This program is part of a regular twice-monthly Hub Dialogue series, featuring David Frum's exclusive analysis of contemporary events for The Hub community. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great thinking and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gornaski Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined by David Frum for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series, From Dialogues. David, as listeners and viewers know, is a staff writer at The Atlantic, the author of several books, and a highly coveted guest and commentator on various cable television programs. We're honored to provide him with a platform to share his insights and analysis on key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. Today's episode is being recorded on American Thanksgiving, So it seemed like a good opportunity to take on the subject of gratitude and why David thinks growing narratives about Western decadence and stagnation need to be challenged. David, thanks for joining us for another episode of From Dialogues. I'm so glad to be here. This may take slightly longer than usual, but let me set up the conversation with three quotations. The first is, quote, we wanted flying cars. Instead, we got 140 characters. The second quote is, quote, We are aging, comfortable and stuck, cut off from the past and no longer optimistic about the future, spurning both memory and ambition will we wait for some saving innovation or revelation, growing old unhappily together in the light of tiny screens. Our civilization has entered into decadence. The third quotation, quote, we discovered that a lot of the strengths of a democratic society are latent, waiting for them when you need them. Most of the time, the greatest strength is our endless self-criticism. All the complaining we do is actually like a silhouette. The complaining tells us about the strengths. David, the first two quotes are from Silicon Valley investor Peter Thiel and New York Times columnist Ross Douthat, who are leading proponents of the stagnation and decadence narrative. The third is from you in our conversation on March 18th about Ukraine's pushback against the Russians. Let's start with your point. What did you mean? What latent strengths in Western societies has the war in Ukraine exposed? And how does our complaining about our societies actually yes. reflect these strengths? Um, t- almost 200 years ago, as he prepared, as he traveled through the United States, Alexis de Tocqueville observed that when a traveler approached the United States, the, f- the thing he heard first was this enormous hubbub of talk. And of analysis, of boasting, of criticism, but it was a giant national conversation of a kind that he was very unfamiliar with in more authoritarian societies in Europe. Cite this just to make the point that what we are hearing today is is not new. That of course we uh, that when you free people to do what they wish, one of the things they wish to do is talk about themselves, and a lot of the, some of the talk will be boastful and some will be self-critical. But I, I think 
I have appended at the top of my Twitter feed, a thing I wrote at the beginning of the war, that everything that critics of democracy wanted to believe was, was, was strong and fearsome has proved weak and cruel. And everything they wanted to prove was decadent has proved str strong. I think we, are, we have seen through the Ukraine war the extraordinary capacities of societies to self-organize. War is not just a test of violence. Um, it's, a, it's a test of mobilization. That's why bandits are violent. They lose wars to organize societies because of their ability to mobilize resources and deploy them. And that's what we are seeing in the Ukraine war. We've seen one other thing, too, that has made impressed me even beyond my expectation when we spoke about this in March, which is one of Russia's greatest hopes in the Ukraine war was that it had seeded and supported a kind of fifth column of pro-Russian, pro-fascist politics inside the developed world. And while there's certainly, if you are on social media, you'll see a lot of trolling by those people. Politically, they have been ineffective. And the their best chance was the November midterms in the United States, where they hoped that they would be able to elect a significant number of pro-Russian trolls uh, into the House of Representatives and even some into the Senate. The senators almost all lost. The, the, few, the one senator who had, took pro-Russian positions during the campaign has been effectively neutered. That's J.D. Vance, who now owes his re-election to, not to Trump, but to the Republican leadership. And in the House, again, that, that group of people is going to be um, weaker than I feared. So we see the extraordinary resources of a democratic society. And as, I, as you kindly remind me of, um, I was smiling because I remember the words, these strengths are latent. They're not always visible, but they are present. Right. It was a thoughtful insight at the time. And as you say, it's only proven more uh, prescient in the subsequent months. But to give Teal and Dothit, as well as other like economists, Tyler Cowen, their due, they'd point to disappointing economic progress outside of the tech sector and other signs like falling fertility rates as evidence of cultural decadence and economic stagnation in the US, Canada, and other Western societies. What parts of their argument David, do you find unpersuasive? Why are they wrong? Well, well, let's start with the famous Peter Thiel quote about flying cars. Let me rephrase it. All I wanted was the capacity to get into traffic accidents in three dimensions instead of two. <laughs> and what I got instead was all the world's libraries in my pocket and the ability to video conference instantly for free with someone in New Zealand. I, I think we got the right end of the trade. I, uh, why aren't why aren't there flying cars? By the way, there are flying cars. They're called helicopters. But but why aren't there more flying cars? Well, because Mr. Market found that people wouldn't pay for them. Why can't I video conference for for free with someone in New Zealand instantly? And, well, because uh, that turned out to be a very valuable service that the market did direct resources to. All Peter Thiel is complaining about is that his boyhood imagination, this is what is going on with Elon Musk, of rocket ships and spacemen and jetpacks, that that turned out not to be the future. What turned out to be the future was what consumers wanted. I mean, one of the ways I think about this is through much of the uh, 20th century, the tallest building in the world was always located in the United States. And now the tallest buildings in the world are located outside the United States, in Malaysia and Dubai. And people can look at this and say, aha, Malaysia and Dubai are overtaking the United States. But what is really going on is, as, always, as they always do, the rich change the game to defeat the poor. Uh, you thought the status symbol was a giant pointy skyscraper. No, the status symbol is a three-story building that is that is completely carbon neutral. Fooled you again, and uh, there's just it's just you know, it, it's there's just something about 
the lack of regard for what a market economy tells you people want. That's what market economies do. They meet the needs we actually have, not the needs that space infatuated 11 year olds imagine that we should have. I'm concerned about, about declining fertility rates. That's, that is a real issue. It's a very specific problem. It's a serious problem. But I think what, um, in that quote by um, Ross Dowd, that what happens a lot, and this is a long tradition in the pattern of conservative criticism of de so-called decadence, and Ross there is just stepping into uh, strands that go all the way back to the Cato's and the Roman Republic and probably to the Bible. There's a strong human tendency to look in a mirror and think you're looking out, out a window. Look, for any of us who reach a certain point, the future holds decline leading to extinction. But that, it is a, a fallacy. It's a, a fallacy the human brain is predisposed to, but it's just a fallacy to project that onto the world. There, there used to be historians like Arnold Toynbee who, who tried to model civilizations as organic entities that had beginnings, middles, and ends. Well, it's true that all organized societies are sooner, sooner or later end or translate into something else. But that, that is not happening according to a biological process. And that is, that is absolutely an anthropomorphizing illusion to believe that. And, and it, it causes you then to lose sight of actual historical, it's bad for the historian because that's not the true historical process. And it's bad for the politically minded person because it doesn't describe the world. I mean, you know, uh, we all, we suffer, we, we do as individuals suffer sickness and illness and, and at a certain point fading strength. And that's our tragedy and transcendence, our faith in it offers us a hope of exit. But that's not true for the world. Let me put a different argument to you. Earlier this year in May, Statistics Canada, Canada's statistical agency, released data that showed that Canadians are less hopeful than they've been in some time. Five years ago, for instance, 75% said that they were feeling hopeful about the future. Now yeah. it's 64%. If we're not decadent or stagnant, yeah. why do significant percentages of Western populations seem down on the future? Right. Well, I, I think there, there may be a problem here of our, our measuring tools. And that a, a, lot of, a lot of polling, I think, can be described as ask, whether we'll ask a silly question. Here's my favorite example of this, that um, when the Republicans of the Senate were blockading the appointment of Merrick Garland to the Supreme Court, Somebody did a poll that found that something like, I don't know, 70% of Americans oppose the blockading of Merrick Garland. I was one of them. Who, so this is, I'm arguing against interest here. But I think it would have been a more interesting poll if they had said, a man in, is in the news for, for something. His name is Merrick Garland. Can you tell me why he's in the news? And then ask the 9% of Americans who can tell you why Merrick Garland is in the news, their opinion, because you're just capturing, you're capturing statistical noise. I think this, to go back to the, serious point about Peter Thiel and um, Tyler Cowen and others, that I would answer to them, when they, what they're concerned about, they look at wage numbers and they look at productivity numbers. And what I would tell them is the problem is that your wage and productivity numbers are not measuring things in the way that they used to and as well as you would like. You know, if you look, for example, if you say, well, you say when, when, when was society making a lot of rapid progress? They might say, well, the period from the Civil War to the First World War. So then, okay, let's look at how wages were doing in that period. And you would see wages didn't do well at all. So why was there the authentic fact of progress? Well, because a lot of the improvement in living standards was delivered through the medium of fi falling prices and improving choices. 
How do you measure it when um, we move from a world in which uh, people are, are moving from various kinds, from salted beef to tinned, to, chill, to tinned beef and then to chilled beef? How, how do you move, how do you measure that? It, it's almost impossible. And I, I would say in, in our time, in the past, I mean, all of us are aware. I, I just watched last night with my family, the movie Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, which is made in the entire delightful comedy made in the early 1990s. And you watch it and you realize, the plot of this movie is entirely impossible today because every plot turn depends on the absence of technologies that we take for granted. You can't, he can't, one of the protagonists can't call home because there's trouble with the pay phones that they, 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 they get broke because uh, they, they only have a certain number of credit cards and the credit cards get, don't work. And they don't know, they don't have the credit card numbers on their telephones. And I mean, it's true that planes are delayed now as they were then and that the basic plot of being snowed in could happen. They have to drive around looking for motel rooms rather than instantly finding any hotel room available within 50 miles on their phone. How do you measure those things? And if you don't measure them, how do you how do you get off saying that we're not better off than when, when I think all of us feel like there's just so many things that make us better off? Last example of this. I think you measure the success of society in tough times. And we've been through in the past three years some very tough things, including above all the COVID pandemic. So I look back on COVID and think, this is an amazing demonstration of the strength of societies. The rapid development of the vaccine, the, the programs to distribute the vaccine, and even most important in the early days when we weren't sure what the problem was, the ability to with, reorganize the whole world of work so that people could work remotely. And those people who couldn't work remotely um, were furloughed by the society. Now, if, if in... 1820, there were a disease that caused people to have to avoid going out in public and working. People would have died of hunger. And if that had happened in 1920, then people would have been very, very hard pressed and a lot of suffering and hardship. When it happened in 2020, governments were able to borrow trillions of dollars from the future at a rate of zero or one or 2% and use those trillions of dollars to furlough people for periods of months. And now the time has come to pay the future back and that, that's a little uncomfortable, but it's what we knew was coming. Uh, and meanwhile, we have all of these extraordinary resources like the one you and I are using right now to have a conversation, you know, at a distance. And this is something we just would not even have thought to do three years ago. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. In the same episode of From Dialogues that I cited earlier, you made the point, as you did earlier in this conversation, David, that there's a tendency for our societies to be nostalgic about the past. In a way, Donald Trump's famous slogan, Make America Great Again captures this point. The word again was arguably the most important in the slogan. What explains this tendency? Why are we wired to romanticize the past and despair about the future? Um, 
Well, because of the slow birth rates, which is, as I, I stress, I think that's the part of this critique that really is true, and we, and we can get to that. In developed societies, the center of gravity of the population is moving into middle age and later middle age. So as a person who is now exiting middle age out the other side, I can say that one of the um, vices or predispositions or distortions of middle age life is the tendency to romanticize the past and to be uh, anxious about the future. And I just think this is something, knowing that the human brain is constituted this way, this is something you need very self-consciously to lean against in your own thinking and to try to always, and maybe because I have children in their 20s, um, always to see the world through the eyes of the young, if you possibly can. My uh, grandmother, Florence Rosberg, who lived to be 92 and who kept all of her faculties to the end, had had a slogan that she often said, I like new. <laughs> and I remember being with her in on the highway in the middle 1970s. She, and she drove this, one of these big mid-70s cutlass, autom cutlass automobiles. And even at the time as a teenager, I thought these cars were hideous. <laughs> and as we're tooling along the Q QEW or whatever road it was in this giant aesthetic offense of an automobile, we are passed by someone who has kept his vintage Buick, 1958 Buick Roadmaster going. And we're, you know, this, we, this thing comes into sight. And I said to her, did people in the 50s know how beautiful their cars were? Square bracket, how much more beautiful than the cars are now? Square bracket. And she said, oh yeah, we, we knew they were beautiful. We were so excited to see them. I said, but that tin can has no seatbelts, no air conditioning, and it didn't even have a radio unless you specially paid for one. I like new. <laughs> and that's why she made it to 92 with all her faculties intact. What are the political economy implications of the current bout of ingratitude? To what extent does it contribute to a zero-sum mindset that's ultimately responsible for, say, growing political polarization or the rise of populism? Yeah. Well, look, there are, we've been talking about conservatives. There are versions of this ingratitude that beset the cultural left. I won't say the political left. And today is a good day to mark them. You know, so if as you enjoy the prosperity and security of democratic societies in North America, be, you did not have to shoulder a rifle to defend those societies, but somebody did. You didn't have to clear the forests and plant the wheat for the first time, somebody did that for you. You didn't have to lay out the railways and the canals, somebody did that for you. And those people were imperfect, as are you. They had limits to their vision, as do you. They had biases and prejudices and bigotries, as do you. So uh, yes, you can acknowledge those defects in them if you acknowledge equal defects in yourself, but for goodness sakes, the rifles and the railroads and the canals and the clearing of the forest and the planting of the wheat, be grateful for that. You inherited all of that. Doug, Douglas Murray, um, in his new book, I, I think it makes this point, I think it's a very profound one, that, that democratic politics has to begin with gratitude for the people who came before you. And without denying the blemishes and failures and crimes in your own history, be grateful for what is done. And so uh, this is why whenever a statue is pulled down, I feel rage. Even if, you know, look, the whole exercise of putting up a statue is in, in a form of myth-making because what human being in the end ultimately deserves a statue. Everyone has so many faults. But we're, we're, when we honor our predecessors, you know, we, we are, we, it's not that we're not mindful of their faults, but we're also putting a light on something else. So, so do that. Honor the people who gave you what you have. If only because 
you, you owe it to them. It's not perfect justice, but it's, it's justice for you to honor those who gave you what you have. And uh, stop pulling down the monuments, stop pulling down the statues, stop renaming things, stop implicitly asserting that you know better. Is there a constituency today for a politics of gratitude? I've had a hunch that Reagan's Morning in America would still resonate more than Trump's American carnage, but there doesn't seem to be many politicians prepared to test that hypothesis, which yeah. may in itself answer my question. Uh, what, what do you think? Well, look, politicians are magical thinkers and they, it's a very inexact science. They test, they, they follow what goes, it goes around. And so, you know, you never, so they, they, they've internalized this idea. You, you never want to be the person who points to the good, but those messages do resonate. And especially, I mean, not to ever, I mean, look, elections are times where we think that they're about the future. We uh, assess our collective problems. We debate solutions to those prospective problems. So, so it's, and so it's not really a moment for self-congratulation, but um, I do think that there is always opportunity for those who point who who use the language of hope, improvement, and who, and who show confidence they are equal to the problem. I mean, if the problem is too big for you to solve, why not then hire someone who can do it? That maybe that just means that you can't do it. And I do think when we put it to the right kind of test, and not the, a poll question, but when we ask people, where do you want to move to? You know, when, when you ask them, are you willing to make investments? You, you see, I mean, when, when people are willing to take accept 2% returns on their investment, that means they're pretty optimistic about the future. More generally, what can be done to give people more hope for the future? If there were a lot more babies and young people around, I think people would feel. So we, we this is where I completely agree with, with Ross. We, we do need everywhere pronatalist policies. And one of the things, I don't think anyone has planned this, but we have ended up across the developed world with a population that rely on immigration rather than fertility to provide the, the people of the future. And, and that's, uh, this is, I've, I've written this over and over again, that's a very stressful situation. And the formula I've used in writing about so often is that, that immigration is to fertility as wine is to food, a, a great supplement, a, a bad substitute. So we we need to have pronatalist policies because people will, when it's their own personal children, they feel differently. I think one of the reasons why we are a little, why we get to be scornful of the environment is that um, a lot of people have the attitude, well, how much do I care about the world? And people are saying these things, what the world's going to be like 40, 50 years from now. Well, I won't be here, so, so why should I care? Well, if your children, your own children, your own grandchildren are going to be there, then you will care more. So, yes, I think pro-fertility pro policies can make a difference. But I think also just a cultural shift. Um, and, and I think a personal shift. You know, one of the things that analysts of decadence or proponents of the idea of decadence will always point to is the arts weren't as great, aren't as great today as they were at some point in time to be D. Say, are you sure? Are you sure? Or is it just your ability to recognize it has deteriorated, that you are less, less interested in, in, in the new than you used to be? Maybe you, the spectator, are the problem. There's a line from one of the Gilbert and Sullivan um, operettas where uh, one of the characters says, of course you will poo-poo all that may be fresh and new and declare it crude and mean, much preferring the arts as they flourished in the court of the Empress Josephine. Well, 
Yeah, the court of the Empress Josephine, there were people who said all everything that is fresh and new was crude and mean. So discover what is fresh and new um, and, you know, t- challenge your own vision. You know, that, that there is, it's true, there's probably less great painting today than there was when painting was the medium of the future. But people are making TikTok videos that are going to be regarded 200 years from now as art in just the same way that Jackson Pollock, who was once laughed at, is now looked at as art. Let's wrap up on this Thanksgiving with a personal question for you. What, what, are, what are you grateful for, David? I'm grateful to be alive at this time as opposed to any other time. I think one of the things that the study of history teach you is you don't want to be born even five minutes earlier than the time you were actually born. I'm, gr- I'm, I'm grateful for the stability of our society. I'm grateful that, to, that so many of our fellow citizens of our own country and other democracies across the world have risen to meet the tests of the past three years and that, and that the forces of reactionary authoritarianism really do seem to be in retreat. I'm grateful for things in, in my personal life. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for love and, and, and being loved. Although I think if you ever have to, that, that the, the experience of giving love to others is the most powerful you can have. And I'm grateful for the ceaseless self-criticizing drama of life in a progressive and dynamic society. Well, there's a whole host of reasons to be grateful. And I'm grateful for uh, the chance to be able to speak to you every couple of weeks. Thanks for today's episode of From Dialogues. And I look forward to picking up the conversation uh, soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this special presentation of The Hub Dialogues brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your audio online and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gornoski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.